Before we get started into our sermon this morning, um, I wanted to make a few quick comments. Uh, if you hadn't heard, uh, there's an election on Tuesday. And this past week we had a prayer night. And the whole point of the prayer night was to discuss uh, this upcoming election, both on a national scale and a statewide scale, but also on a local scale. And really the thing that I discovered, uh, which I kind of presumed to begin with, is that in 2016, there are a lot of Christians out there who are conflicted and torn and confused about what to do or what not to do in a way that they maybe haven't been conflicted or confused before. In the past, it's been relatively easy for most Christians to find a candidate that, while they may not be perfect, they could support pretty confidently. They could feel pretty good about that candidate, even though they're less than perfect. And there are lots of Christians this time around who really don't feel that way. And most of us as Christians probably believe that we should vote, but a lot of us are still confused about how we're going to do it. And we only have about 48 hours left to decide. So I wanted to give one piece of guidance that I'm kind of trying to take myself but also one piece of encouragement for you if you are concerned and worried and potentially even fearful of what's happening over the next few days. The one piece of guidance that I'm trying to adhere to myself is that we would view our vote as followers of Christ as an opportunity to express our love for God and an opportunity to express our love for our neighbor. So what that means is that as you go to the ballot box on Tuesday, if you look at a list of candidates and you see a candidate who you feel you can vote for as an act of love for your God and love for your neighbor, then vote for that person. That may be Donald Trump. That may be Hillary Clinton. That may be somebody else. If you look at that list of candidates and you don't see anyone that you can vote for as an expression of love for God and love for your neighbor, then abstain. I know that's hard. I know that's something that many of us have never had to do before. I know that would be a tough pill for a lot of us to swallow. But we vote as followers of Christ to express love for God and love for our neighbor, to seek the common good. And then finally, as that encouragement, if you're concerned, if you're worried, if you're scared, I would remind you, the stuff that I'm reminding myself of, is that regardless of what happens Tuesday, Christ is still alive, God is still on his throne, you still have the Holy Spirit. The gates of hell still will not prevail against God's church. The word of God is still inspired. Christ is still going to return and the kingdom of God is still going to come as well. So if nothing else, we have that. And that is certainly not nothing. That can give us hope. That can give us confidence. That can give us joy, regardless of what the future might hold in our political world or even in our country. So with that. Let's get into our sermon this morning as we begin a new series in the book of Jude. Now, the book of Jude, many have people, many people have rightly pointed out, is often the most neglected book in the New Testament. It's small. It's near the end. It's easy to skip over. But it starts out like lots of other books in the New Testament. Cordial, uplifting, positive. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. 
pretty standard beginning. We read that Jude, the author of the book, is a brother of James. But even more significantly, Jude is a younger brother of Jesus himself. He doesn't flaunt it, but that's who he is. And Jude is writing to fellow believers, people that he identifies as called, beloved, and kept for God, kept for Jesus Christ. And based on the way Jude writes, he seems to know these people pretty well. He almost sounds like a pastor writing to his church, writing to people who he cares about, people who he loves. And he even views himself as responsible for shepherding them. And we'll see that more in the verses ahead. But while the book sounds warm and comforting in the beginning, it really doesn't stay that way for very long. After verse 2, the mood quickly darkens, and Jude seems to be writing with a sense of urgency and a sense of concern for his readers. The problem is that Jude has a warning for his audience. It turns out that not all is well amongst the churches and the believers who are reading these words. So Jude is sounding the alarm bells because something has gone wrong, and many people don't even realize it. And because of the threat that Jude is writing to address, Jude also has a challenge for his readers. And it's a challenge that's intimidating, to say the least. Now, unfortunately, the same threat that concerned Jude 2,000 years ago is still a threat amongst churches today. And because the same threat still lurks around in churches like ours even, That means that the intimidating challenge is still valid, too. But what exactly is Jude's challenge for these readers? Well, it's four big words that really set the tone for this entire sermon series. Those four words are contend for the faith. So open your Bibles to the book of Jude. Again, it's near the end of your Bible, right next to the book of Revelation. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any reading in the book of Jude, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you've given to us, all the ways that you provide for us. Thank you for the exciting announcement that we made earlier this morning. Uh, We're blessed to have that announcement to make and and, and blessed to see what the future holds uh, through ministry to our students here at Prairie View. Father, thank you that regardless of what happens over the next few days that we get worked up about and concerned about, thank you that you're still on your throne. And in the big scheme of things, our fate, our destiny, our hope, our joy is really unaffected by what's happening in our country. But Father, I pray that we as Christians would steward our votes well, that we would vote in a way that honors you, that expresses love for our neighbor, that seeks the common good. And upholds truth. So, Father, give us wisdom as we pray and think about how to do that. And give us unity and give us humility, even amongst those who disagree with us on that vote. And, Father, be with us as we read your word this morning. I pray that you would give us strength and courage and boldness to contend for the faith, even when it gets hard. So, Father, thank you for this piece of guidance from the book of Jude. Thank you for your son who died on the cross, who rose from the grave, who ascended, and who will return. And, Father, we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, help us to contend. Help us to stand strong. Help us to stand firm 
in your word and in your gospel. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's begin in verse 3. We already read verses 1 and 2, picking up in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So right after that greeting that sounded so warm and fuzzy, Jude immediately jumps into both the threat and the challenge that he issues. And again, those four challenging words are the theme for the whole book and thus for the entire sermon series. Contend for the faith. Now, Jude acknowledges that he didn't really want to write about this. He wanted to talk about their common salvation, a topic that is much more enjoyable much more pleasurable for them to read about. But this issue was important, and this issue had to be nipped in the bud. Because like we discussed with Paul's relationship to the Corinthians over the summer, Jude loves these people too much to not say anything about the threat living right under their noses. So Jude finds it necessary to write those challenging words instead. Contend for the faith. Then we get to verse 4, and Jude continues. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Certain people, a.k.a. false teachers, have infiltrated the church. And even worse, these people have done this unnoticed. The word that he uses even sounds a bit scary, a bit insidious. He says these people have crept in. They have slithered into the church unnoticed. And he even goes so far as to say that these people were designated for this condemnation a long time ago. Now, that kind of makes them sound even more intimidating, even more dangerous, doesn't it? But in a weird way, those words are also comforting. They're comforting in the sense that God isn't surprised. God knows who these people are. God knew that people like this would creep into his churches. God knows all the tricks they have up their sleeves as they try to lead these believers astray. Now, sure, they're dangerous. Jude makes that very clear. But Jude also makes it clear that God is still in charge. Now, what are these creepers? We'll call them creepers because they crept in. What are these creepers doing that is so alarming? What's wrong with them? Why would Jude use such strong words against them? Well, we saw why in verse 4. Because they pervert God's grace. And thus they reject Jesus. So as Jude contends for the faith against these false teachers, Jude will not, in fact, he cannot hold anything back. Because this problem is just that serious. Now that's the bird's eye view of the situation that Jude is addressing. But let's dig deeper. Because the beauty of spending three weeks in a book with only 25 verses is that we can go a whole lot deeper into each verse. So let's talk more about that challenge that Jude has issued. Let's talk more about the certain people that Jude is concerned about. And let's talk about how that comes back to us. 
So go back to verse 3. Jude, verse 3. Specifically, look back at the word contend. Contend. Now, the word that is used there implies that this is going to be very strenuous work. In the original language, it actually sounds like the word agonize. It's going to be agonizing to contend for the faith. That word can be used to describe someone taking part in combat. It's the verse that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 1.12 when he tells Timothy to fight the good fight, to contend. Based on the word that Jude uses, Jude acknowledges that this is not going to be a cakewalk. Contending for the faith will be difficult, and it will even be costly for those who rise up to the challenge. But speaking of those who rise up to the challenge, who exactly is this challenge for? Who is Jude calling to contend for the faith? Well, we saw that in verse 1. Those who are called, beloved, and kept. A.K.A. every single believer reading the letter, both then and now. Jude is not just calling the pastors or the professional theologians or the Christian authors and speakers to fight this battle. Jude is calling every single Christian, reading his words, into this battle to contend for the faith. If you sit here this morning as a follower of Jesus, Jude has enlisted you as a combatant on behalf of the faith and a combatant against false teaching. Okay, so we're called to combat false teaching, but what again are we fighting for? The faith. The faith that Jesus passed down to his apostles. The one we read about in scripture. The one that has been preached to you. Paul might define the faith as two words. Christ crucified. The gospel. And everything that flows from that. But why are we contending? Why do we fight for the faith? Why are we in this battle? Why are we so concerned with false teaching? Well, we contend for the faith because we love God and we love our neighbor. We love God too much to sit back and watch as people misrepresent his character, misrepresent his word, and misrepresent his desires for humanity. And we love people too much to let them persist in teaching or believing a false gospel. A gospel that will only lead to judgment and destruction. We don't contend for the faith just because we like picking fights with people. We don't contend for the faith because we like showing off how much we know about the faith. We don't contend for the faith just because we like winning arguments. We contend for the faith because we love God and we love our neighbor. And our love for God and our love for our neighbor compels us to fight against that which would be destructive. But realistically, what does this contending really look like? I mean, we can read a verse like this and we can talk about contending for the faith and talk tough, but how do we actually do it? What does it actually look like? Sometimes we hear this verse and we think about how important it is for Christians to do things like apologetics. The discipline of trying to persuade non-Christians of the legitimacy of the Christian faith. Maybe we read a verse like this and we think of scientific arguments attempting to prove the existence of God. 
Or we read a verse like this and we think of all the scary philosophical and ethical ramifications of believing that there is no God. Now, all those things can have a role and can have value when it comes to defending the faith as we engage non-Christians. That's true. Those things can be useful. But that's not the primary thing we're talking about here. We're not talking about Christians trying to defend the faith against non-Christians. We're talking about people who present themselves to be Christians, but are actually presenting a false gospel. That's a lot to say about just one verse, but before we move forward, I do have one question for us to consider, and that's this. Right now, are you and I contending for the faith? Are we contending for the faith? Because I assume that most of us, if we're really honest about it, we aren't putting up much of a fight. Maybe that's because of fear. Maybe it's because we feel inadequate to offer any defense of the faith against those who promote error. Maybe we're in denial that there's any battle going on at all. We have this attitude of, well, live and let live. They teach what they want to teach, and I'll teach what I want to teach, and we'll just leave it at that. Well, if you didn't notice, the world is changing. And it's changing so fast that even those who push for change haven't fully considered all the ramifications of such great change. Now, is some change good? Of course. Some change can be wonderful. But not all change is good. Some people have noted that we're living in a post-Christian society, meaning a society where Christianity simply doesn't have the influence that it once did. If you don't believe that, look at the two primary candidates for president. But then some would even argue that we're transitioning not just in a post-Christian culture, but transitioning to an anti-Christian culture. Not just that Christianity is losing influence, but that Christianity is starting to become downright unacceptable in our advancing society. And because of that, because of how the world is changing, because of how people are starting to view Christianity in our world, what that means is that Christian leaders, Christian teachers, Christian speakers, authors, bloggers, you name it, those Christians are being tempted and will continue to be tempted to give in to what society tells them to do. They will be tempted to stop contending for the faith. Christians will be tempted to abandon sound teaching. Pastors will stop contending for the faith. That way people still come to their churches. Authors will stop contending for the faith. That way people still buy their books. Bloggers will stop contending for the faith. That way people still read their blogs. It's going to be a temptation for Christians like me and Christians like you to not contend for the faith for the sake of staying relevant, for the sake of not being called bigoted or being outcast or being neglected by our culture. Now, considering that, having a sober-minded view of the world around us and just how agonizing this contending for the faith really can be, the question then becomes, well, are we prepared to contend for the faith? 
At an even more basic level, do you know the faith? Perhaps that was part of the problem for these believers that Jude is writing to. I mean, how could such blatantly false teaching come into their churches unnoticed? How did nobody say anything when this teaching made its way in? Maybe it's because they didn't really know their faith very well to begin with. So let me ask you this. Is scripture a regular part of your life? Are you part of a small group where you actually spend time discussing and thinking about and asking questions about the Christian faith? Have you spent a second of your free time to educate yourself on the faith when that's the thing that is supposedly the most important part of our lives? So I pray that we are prepared to contend for the faith. I pray that we would notice if and when false teaching creeps in among us. And I pray that we wouldn't be scared or intimidated or too cowardly to stand up and fight when the faith needs to be fought for. Look back at verse 4 again. We talked about the word contend, but now look at these certain people that Jude writes about. How exactly are these certain people identified? Well, the first word that Jude uses to describe them is ungodly. We're going to see that word again later in the book. Really, the content of these people's lives should have exposed them as false. I mean, Jesus himself said that by people's fruits, we will know them, right? The teaching that someone offers might sound wonderful. It might sound comforting. It might sound revolutionary even. But actions speak louder than words. So as you're contending for the faith, a good place to start would be to look for godly teachers. Not just a teaching that sounds nice, but look at the content of a teacher's life. But then the next characteristic is the most serious. Not only are they ungodly, but these teachers pervert God's grace. Think about that phrase. How big a deal that is. These people pervert God's grace. This is commonly known as antinomianism. The idea that so long as I believe in Jesus, I have license to do whatever the heck I want, right? So long as I raise a hand at an evangelistic meeting, so long as I said a prayer one time when I was six, then I can do whatever I want, right? Well, Paul encounters that attitude in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, people are coming to Paul and saying, Hey, Paul, why does it matter how we live? We're saved by grace anyway, right? So let's go crazy. Well, look at how Paul responds in verse 2. By no means. May that never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul takes someone who makes this argument. That, well, I'm saved by God's grace, so why does it matter what I do? And Paul says, you know, that's not someone who understands God's grace. 
That's not someone who has been truly changed by God's grace, brought to new life by God's grace. That's not someone who appreciates God's grace. That attitude exposes someone who takes advantage of God's grace, who exploits God's grace. They pervert God's grace. And they do this specifically to pursue their own sensuality. Keep that word in mind, their own sensuality. They do it to pursue their sinful lusts, their hungers, their desires. And let's be honest. It's really not that hard to twist God's grace, to twist God's mercy, to twist God's kindness, to justify doing the things that you want. And let's be real. Sinful humans are actually quite good at that. But Paul warned Timothy about teachers like these. And to be a warning that we would be well to heed as well. Second Timothy four, starting in verse one. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse three is where it gets interesting. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Suit their own passions. That sounds a lot like sensuality, doesn't it? These people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. There's another warning in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And one of the things that we'll notice is that the book of 2 Peter and the book of Jude have a lot of things in common. And we see that in this passage. Chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. That sounds familiar. That's from verse 4. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Sounds a lot like what Jude is saying. These false teachers are guilty of perverting God's grace for the sake of their own wants, their own desires, their own sensuality. But Jude makes it clear that by doing so, by perverting God's grace, by letting their desires rule over them, these people deny Jesus Christ. They reject, disown, and contradict him as master and lord. Now, I find it interesting that in verse four, the word savior is not included. Jude says they deny Jesus as master. They deny Jesus as Lord. But he does not accuse them of denying Jesus as savior. Now, maybe that's not a coincidence. Because those who pervert God's grace as license for their own desire. Those people might have no problem with the idea of Jesus as savior. They just might not like the idea of Jesus as master and Lord. 
These false teachers might like the idea of Jesus dying for them as long as Jesus doesn't tell them what to do. But unfortunately, Jesus never gives us that option. Now, this threat still exists. The temptation to follow those who pervert God's grace and deny Jesus. And the temptation and the threat are so strong because they appeal to our desires. And that is strong. And because the same threat still exists, we need Christians willing to accept Jude's challenge. The challenge to contend for the faith. Now, again, there are different ways to do that, but a few suggestions from what we've read this morning. Number one, as you look to contend for the faith, this might sound overly simple, but strive to be the opposite of those certain people that Jude warns us about. Jude says these people are ungodly. Well, keep an eye on your own godliness. Jude says these people are governed by sensuality. Well, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, the opposite of sensuality. Jude says these false teachers, these certain people, reject Jesus as Master and Lord. So I would challenge you to embrace Jesus as your Master and Lord. And on top of that, as you contend for the faith, educate yourself in the faith. Take time to learn sound doctrine. Take time to grow in your knowledge of the word. Ask questions of those who know the word better than you do. That you might actually know how to contend. And how to identify false teaching that creeps in. And take Paul's guidance to Timothy seriously. That passage we read, 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. through If you see a fellow believer being led astray in teachings that just don't seem quite right, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. In other words, have the guts to say something. Now, that conversation may be uncomfortable. It may be awkward. You might be nervous. But don't just sit back and watch as fellow believers are deceived by false teaching. Don't just sit back and watch as false teaching creeps in. And don't just sit back and watch as people are led astray into paths of destruction and heartache and pain. As beloved, called, and kept sons and daughters of God, we sit here right now knowing the truth of the gospel. We sit here knowing what it means to be shown the grace of God. We know what it means to call Jesus Master and Lord. And because we know these truths, we are called to contend for them against those who would lead us and lead others astray into false gospels. We do this because we love God too much to do anything less We love our neighbors too much to do anything less. So again, if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, you have been enlisted in a battle. And that battle can be intimidating, strenuous, and even agonizing at times. But the beauty of the gospel is that the biggest battle, far bigger than our battle against false teaching, has already been won at the cross. We can read about these certain people. We can read about those who would attempt to lead us astray. 
But even in the midst of that, we don't have to question whether or not the faith will win out in the end. Because God has already assured victory in eternity through the cross of Christ. But until that day comes when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Until then, we stand firm in the word of God. We hold fast by the power of the Holy Spirit, even when it's hard work. Because we contend for the faith. We love God and we love our neighbor too much to do otherwise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you that we can call ourselves the loved, called, and kept. Not because of anything we have to offer, not because of leverage that we brought to the table, but purely out of your kindness and purely out of your mercy. Father, thank you that you give us warnings like these. Thank you that we're not the first Christians to battle false teaching. We're not the first Christians to be tempted to follow our own desires rather than to contend for your faith. So, Father, I pray that you would give us boldness, that you'd give us courage to accept that challenge. That you and your word and you by your Holy Spirit would grow us and educate us in our knowledge and our understanding and our love for you and in our understanding of our faith. Thank you that even though we have a fight on our hands, because there certainly is false teaching out there, there certainly are people out there who would attempt to lead us down paths of destruction. Even though we have that fight on our hands, we are not fighting by our own power. We're fighting with the word that you've given us. We're fighting with the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we're fighting knowing that in the big scheme of things, you've already won the war. That Christ died, that Christ rose, that Christ ascended, and Christ will return. So God, we know that victory is in store for us. But in the meantime, I pray that we would stand firm. That we would contend for the faith. That you would enable us and strengthen us to be faithful no matter how hard that might be. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I encourage you to talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room, happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, happy to talk about whatever it is that you might need to discuss this morning. And on top of that, again, as you leave this morning, uh, we encourage you to take a moment and thank Kenny and Kylie for their service to Prairie View. Take a moment and greet Zach and Hannah and thank them and pray for them as they start this new journey of serving here at Prairie View. And we're very grateful for your time this morning, and we hope to see you next week.